Welcome to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. In this episode, Michael Irwin from Docker Inc. is on to talk with Nermal and me about all the products and features Docker shipped in 2023 and what's coming in early 2024. Michael's been on this show many times as a Docker captain and now as a Docker employee, and it's always great to dig into the details of the products with someone who's been using them for so many years as an end user turned staff at Docker. Docker did some big things in 2023, but they also shipped some smaller features that in this episode, we will help you catch up on. This is an edited version of our weekly live show that you can join and chat with us on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at brett.live. So please enjoy this episode with Michael Irwin and Nermal Mehta. Hi, Nermal. Hello. My co-host is back. Nermal Mehta from AWS. Good to see you. All right. Welcome, Michael. Thanks. Well, we're going to talk about Docker for this next hour, and we've got a lot to get through. So the gist of the year is Docker released a ton of stuff. The TLDR is a ton of stuff across all their product lines, everything from Hub to Docker Desktop to Engine to Compose to new things, AI. Like we've got a, a bunch we're going to get through. I have talked about this for you all on the internet multiple times this year, and we had multiple days of product releases, which it was kind of nice because we all go to KubeCon and other, you know, Linux conferences and stuff. And there's not usually product releases on stage because it's all open source usually. So yep. there, you don't really need to make announcements. And so yeah. it's kind of nice to go to a conference where there's, you know, what's what's today's announcement? What's what's the new tool I get to download today or get jump into a waiting list for a trial? Yeah, but I will say from the the inside, the conference driven development is stressful as I'll get out. <laughs> oh, preach. <laughs> preach as someone who is still four weeks after recovering from AWS reInvent. Oh, yes. <laughs> anyway, let's get to it. Nermal, I don't really have an order for this. Should we just go top down? So let's start with the core, right? The Docker engine. That's probably the best place to start because there was a lot of activity there that was not typical of previous years. But give us the rundown on the Docker engine this past in 2023. Yeah, the Docker Engine 24.0 release. 24 was a, a big release, and like, there's a ton of stuff that was included yeah. in this. Oh, yeah. And a lot of stuff that, that people have been kind of anxiously waiting for a little while and, and whatnot. So it's, in many ways, I also see it as a good sign. You know, when Docker has kind of gone through this rebirth of, of, in many ways, it, it took a while to ramp things back up and to get all the, the processes and the people and the open source and everything moving again and, and a streamlined. And so, again, that's, partly why it took a while, but hey, now it's out there. And since then, there's been several patch releases. And so yeah, the, the gears are moving and releases are happening and you know, lots of good stuff in there. We won't go through all of it here, but you know, it's nice to see the improvements around build kits and which helps enable a lot of the other things that we're doing around SBOMs and that kind of stuff too. But again, just a lot of good stuff in the core here. And again, it's further showing our commitment to continuing to, to support the open source projects here and continue to help out the ecosystem. So. Yeah. Obviously, the commercial products get a lot of the press. They're flashy. There's a, there's GUIs, there's websites. And of course, we all came into this game when we, all we had was Docker Engine and Docker CLI. And if you look at the version releases, like we had a version released in 2019. We had a version released in 2020. And then it, it was three years before we got the next one. One, two, three, yeah. And now we're on this rapid clip of we've had two major versions in a year, in less than a year. And... To me, I, the one thing that I remember from all these, both of these releases is 
the build kit and build X and build kit are updated and now the default builder in every installation case on every system, not just Docker desktop. For a lot of us, we for years were putting Docker build kit as an environment variable and we don't have to do that anymore, even on a Linux builder. And I will release a podcast about Docker file front ends, which you all should listen to. And it talks all about these front ends that are essentially powered by this change. Because yeah. now that we have BuildKit as a default builder, everyone can use these new fancy front end features that are essentially Dockerfile versions. So I did a whole 15 minute rant about that last night on a podcast release. So yeah, Docker engine. Yay. Okay. There the it first, is. First checkbox. First checkbox. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now there's a ton of stuff in here. We just lumped around Docker desktop updates. So I tried to break it out a little bit uh, to... Docker desktop itself and things that only are in Docker desktop and then Docker tooling, like maybe Compose or uh, CLIs that maybe you could get elsewhere. Yeah, Michael, tell us a little bit about these performance improvements. Yeah, so this year the, the team really doubled down and, and, and probably more than doubled, tripled, quadrupled, whatever. Um, it was a big effort internally of like, how do we just make it faster? Because we were seeing and hearing from a lot of folks that just Hey, we, we need better speed improvements or, you know, it takes so much, so many resources to run. And while there was some truth to it in many aspects, they were blown out of proportion compared to what they should have been at, at times. But, you know, hey, the best way to, to help that out is just to say, hey, we're going to make performance better anyways. And so, again, really just drilled down into that and like, how, how can we make performance better? So startup times on my Mac, I can go from Docker desktop not running to a container running within two seconds now, which is unheard of from even a year ago. Mm -hmm. Some of the other numbers that were uh, on the screen there, 400 for about 450% improvement in network speeds. And that's a lot of going from the host into the container um, or vice versa. So um, if you're copying files or sharing files, um, and that also helps uh, speed up a lot of the build time improvements and, and whatnot. There were Rosetta work for those running on Mac um, that, that went in GA this year as well. Uh, so again, a lot better uh, emulation if you still have to run AMD 64 binaries and images and whatnot. And this last one is actually a, a pretty cool one. It's a resource saver mode. When Docker Desktop, when you're not running any containers or, or doing any work there, the virtual machine that Docker is using will just shut down and will just kill it off for you. And so you're getting back all that CPU and battery and everything. And then the next time you run a container, that'll start the VM back up. And again, because of the speed improvements, which we've been putting into it, that VM starts up really quickly now too. Yeah. So yeah, it's been awesome. Yeah, performance always matters. And as much as we are getting bigger and beefier machines all the time, it's just it just matters all the time, yes. right? And I think you've probably seen this with all the folks that we interact with the community and customers and folks just getting started. The immediate performance of that tool is is like the main takeaway, right? It's that yep. first impression. It's the lasting impression. And when you're using it daily, it's like having a sharp knife, right? You want to make sure that like a, a chef wants to have a sharp knife. It just matters all the time. <laughs> and, and for me too, it's also been nice to actually look at my Mac, what apps are using the most power, what's draining my battery the most. And I haven't seen Docker Desktop on that list in quite a long time now, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's a good feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I do like the multiple, like there's a manual option for putting it to sleep. There's this automatic resource saver option. I now feel like I've got more control over pausing it and uh, all yep. that stuff. And if those of you out there, if you haven't realized, like the command line will automatically wake it up. There's certain tricks up their sleeve. And the, the captains have been giving feedback around this because 
mm-hmm. we're all not only are we just running a daily for work, but we're all constantly playing with new features, trying to figure things out. And you know, as we add, as we click all the boxes, enable all the things, it could get a little, it could get a little hairy for how much resources Do- Docker is running, especially if you have a whole bunch of extensions, yep. which we were going to get to because the extensions came out last year, right? Twenty twenty two was yeah, the year of extensions, yeah. Yep. And I feel like 2023 was the year of extensions really coming into their own as sort of this de facto. Now everyone else is copying Docker desktop extensions idea. All the, you know, a lot of the other container tooling is jumping on that bandwagon. And it's a great idea. I always point out that a year and a half ago, when Docker first came to the captains and said, Hey, we're thinking of this idea. We're calling it extensions. It's little programs inside Docker desktop, maybe in the GUI. And they run in a container and what do you think? What do you, what ideas do you have? And I think the captains came up with like two or three and we're, we're yeah. kind of struggling to figure out oh. well, what would I want to run in Docker that I can't already in a container. And then suddenly the marketplace just blew up, you know, within the first six months of all these great ideas. I didn't know I needed OpenShift. I didn't know I needed Portainer with a one-click install, but I do. And they're all there now. Yep. So yep. we've got a couple actually to talk about here in a minute, if I can shut up. All right. We have lots of dashboard updates. You mentioned that. The GUI itself is actually getting much more advanced in terms of like showing resources and all the buttons. So yeah, the, the main container screen didn't get a ton of updates. So some of the, just the layouts and that kind of stuff, maybe some small ones, but there's some additional charts to be able to see CPU and memory uh, usage and whatnot. I can also drill into a specific container. I can see stats about this specific container. There's some new features around being able to see a file navigator. If, if I'm not as comfortable with the CLI or navigating through, I can do that as well. I can edit, make changes to files directly in here as well, too. Of course, it, it's still, it's not a full IDE or anything of that sort. But if you need to make just quick changes or navigate around, again, just some kind of quality of life improvements there. Some other things with the dashboard, the quick search at the top. So if I'm just getting started, say I want to you know, run a Jupyter notebook, you know, I could just search Jupyter and this is giving me all the sponsored open source projects and I can just click on run and it will download and, and get it going and everything, too. So... Again, it'll search docs and extensions, volumes, containers, you know, quite a few different things there as well, too. So, yeah, lots of like small improvements to the dashboard, to the UI. Again, as as Docker becomes more of a commodity, more utility that more folks are using, it's starting to to be used by folks that aren't as comfortable in the CLI and other, you know, other types of developers. So the more that we can continue to to build this out and, you know, click operations is, is a very valid way of doing things, too. So. As much as us command line junkies think that's the only way like people interact with computing worlds, you're right. Like there's lots of folks that use user interfaces and GUIs and those performance improvements on top of the improvements in the UI in combination, open access to Docker for lots more folks, right? So folks that are running on older hardware where those resources are more constrained Plus, those are then also going to be typically the folks that might be using the GUI tools or yep. more on their, on their older hardware. And so it becomes more accessible, which is awesome. Yeah, it just makes me think, okay, can I teach Docker without ever touching the CLI? We're not quite there yet. We're still working on it. So yeah. there are some things that you still have to do with the CLI. Like I, I can't do a build through the GUI yet. So you still have to use a you know, Docker build command. I can't spin up a composed project unless it was, you know, stopped. I can press play to continue. So right. that, there are still a couple things you can't do through the GUI. It's not like, yeah, there's not like file open, compose file, project, launch. Yeah, doesn't have that workflow yet, but. Not yet. 
No, not yet. <laughs> yeah, and so that's the thing, right? We keep adding more features to the GUI, but we also want it to be super fast. So like, there's yep. always that balancing act, and that's the struggle yep. for it. I love the build view, but we're going to get to that in a minute. Like, I love yep. the idea of expanding on that. There's We also are going to talk about some extensions, including the debug extension in a little bit. Anything else before we move on to Docker and Knit? Let's uh, move on to Docker and Knit. Yeah, or Learning Center. I don't know if you want to mention the Learning Center, but... Yeah. yeah so, I mean, we won't spend a lot of time there, but we've been... As we, again, are trying to help folks onboard and learn, there's a new learning center that's part of Docker Desktop that has a, a couple of small, short little walkthroughs. Okay, what is a container? Click here to run the container. And it's like this interactive walkthrough. And again, we're just getting started there too. But yeah, stay tuned for more updates in that area. That's right. awesome. The more folks that are getting involved and learning how to use these tools is the better, I think. Yep. All right, so Docker and Knit. What is it and when do we use it? What's a good use case for Docker init? Yeah, so Docker init is a, a new command that's basically used to help bootstrap a project. So if I've got a, a Python application or a Node app, there's there are several different languages it supports now. I can use Docker init and it'll kind of discover the languages that, that are in use there and create a, a Docker file, create a compose file, and then a, a separate readme of just, here's what we created for you and here's how to use it and whatnot. And just kind of help bootstrap and, and get you started. Now, it's not going to be the end-all solution. Like It doesn't set up a, the, your full dev environment and everything because there's so many different ways to do that. But it's help just kind of initialize and help bootstrap, get you at least a couple steps further down the road. And like even the Docker file, like when, when they first launched it, like I, I opened up a Docker file on a project. I'm like, okay, I'm actually picking up a couple of new things here as well too. <laughs> They're using like the latest and okay, hey, I'm doing a run with a cache yep. mount and you know, it's using a lot of the best practices and it's all documentative and with comments of here's what's happening and here's why we're doing this and, and whatnot too. So it's a great bootstrapping, great tool to help get you started. This Docker in it is like one of those things where it's like, why wasn't this around? So <laughs> like we're, we're nine, 10 years into this. It's like, man, this should have been around for a while, but I'm glad it's well, there now. Employee hadn't put the captain hat back on from the past. Like we, it's been interesting because over the years, Docker has kind of played with tools like this in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about because there was yeah. private source enterprise tools, there was open source projects. But I'll think, real quick, I think that we got lost along the way. It's a great question, Nermal. I think we got yep. lost along the way around migrating of legacy apps and creating a workflow around that where mm. even though this is technically that because it requires that you have your software project first, right? You don't yep. Docker init before your NPM init or whatever. And so you have to have the project there, which technically makes it like a, a migrating kind of tool because yep. you're presumably having an app, even if it's just a demo app that doesn't have a Docker file, doesn't have a Docker ignore, doesn't have a compose file. And I love that Docker init actually does all those things and not just a Docker file, because I think at first it was always about the Docker file. And now it feels like Docker init is, well, we're just going to give you all the, the, the standard three, I think it's three, maybe, I think it's just three files actually in it. Docker file, compose file, and Docker ignore. I think that is what yeah. it creates. And yeah. it's it's language specific. And I think a lot of this stuff before was, it was either, well, this is a 101 generic Docker file that anyone in any project could use, or it was a very specific migration tool that would maybe go deeper into the an analyzing of your project. Because Michael, yeah. I don't actually know this, on the init, does it actually look does it know how to build in dependencies and all that? Or is it just saying, oh, you have a node project, so I just add in NPM CI? Like, 
it, it gets kind of generic like that, right? It doesn't really. Yeah, I mean, so, so it does a little bit of language detection and of course prompts you and ask, okay, did we detect it right? Um, but then from there, it is a little hard coded. It, it, it'll ask you, okay, are you using NPM or Yarn? You know, so it'll ask a yeah. couple of those kind of basic dependency things. Um, but beyond that, there's not a lot of additional branching out or um, you know customization that that it will do itself. Of course, it'll create the stuff and then you can customize it however you want from there. Right. Um, right. Yeah. It's not like static that, an analyzing yeah, toolkit not to determine point. your dependencies or yeah. But you know, it, it is a kind of interesting thing because as we're looking at like Docker AI and, and that kind of stuff, which I know we'll talk more about the AI stuff later, it's mm -hmm. kind of like how might that be able to plug in here to help you bootstrap a project more aligned with how you're already doing things or, or whatnot too. So, and yeah, how does one implement a template for Docker init for unsupported languages? So as of today, we don't have that yet, but it is something that we, we've done a lot of talking about internally of, yeah, how do you, I mean, just how you can NPX create or yarn create or, you know, whatever, and use these templates from other community sources, what might a yeah. similar thing look like here as well too. So no answer there yet. Yeah, there's a feedback in when you run Docker init, you can select, don't see something you need, let us know. And so that yep. probably sends a message right to Michael or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's it's definitely funny. one of the only one of the only employees at Docker now. What do we? What do you have over like five hundred employees or something now? Yeah, I we're remember five hundred now. Yep. Yeah. Wow. It's just amazing. I mean, three four years ago you were at seventy something, and now five. That's just even so even when growth. I joined almost two years ago, we were at just about one fifty. So even in yeah. almost two years, Ooh. it's tripled. So. That's crazy. crazy. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. To, I, I mean, we could have a whole show about how do you even keep culture in a place like that where everybody's Ooh, new and how do you bring? Yeah, yeah, that's a great. That's a good hard. idea for a show. It would be. So going from that to Compose, right? So like, let's yeah. not ignore the fact that Compose got a lot of love this year, too. So what are some new stuff in Compose? Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to pitch my I've got a few shorts here on YouTube about Compose Watch. We I think a lot of people, if you've been watching this channel, you or watching my newsletter, reading my newsletter, whatever, you're probably aware of Watch, which is my favorite feature of Compose in the last years, like many years, other than Compose going to the Compose spec instead of versions. That was a fantastic move. So Watch is that thing that syncs. It essentially, I feel like it, <laughs> I, I kept calling it Docker Compose Sync all this time, but watches <laughs> your files. And I think in a lot of ways, it removes the need for a bind mount, particularly on Mac, for those of us on Mac that struggle mm -hmm. with the Mac to Linux barrier. Who knew that Mac would be the place where it's actually the least Linux-like OS of the three major OSs for a desktop? Who, yeah, crazy world we live in. But Michael, we, we have Compose Include, and then we have Compose Publish. And I oh, didn't put, yeah. Compose Publish wasn't in the list either. See this, we're already forgetting things. Um, what's the elevator pitch on Include? So include, uh, the, the way I like to say it is it allows your Compose apps to be composable, which I, I, to some people are like, okay, that didn't explain anything to me. I can't define it by using the term. <laughs> but anyway, it allows you to break up your Compose files into uh, smaller Compose files. Um, and so actually some of the use cases that we started to see around that might be um, larger teams, larger companies that might uh, start to have a shared services library type thing where they could say, all right, here's a repo, for example, that has a bunch of shared services and compose files and config files and everything that's needed to, to support a lot of the application development. And so now I can just say, okay, cool, I'm doing a LAMP stack application, whatever, and I'm gonna pull in MySQL and PHP, MyAdmin or, or whatever else, and I'm just gonna pull from that shared services library. 
And then my compose file has just the PHP application and the bind mounts and the things that my app needs, but then all those other services I'm including from somewhere else, just as an example. And you can think of similar things for, okay, I need to run Kafka. Well, running Kafka is not as easy as just running Kafka. You got to run Zookeeper and all the config and everything else that comes along with it. So, okay, cool. Let me just define a compose file for that, um, share that amongst my teams, and then I can just include that. Um, And so again, starting to see some interesting use cases there. There's a, a I think you still have to use an environment variable flag right now, but there's a way to do a compose include that references a git repo where it'll actually clone that repo and then use it from there. So it doesn't have to be a local file or something on the, the file system as well too. So again, some interesting use cases that opens up. But. Yeah, that's very neat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The question on uh, profile versus include to me, I use I love Profile. It's one of those underrated features that is relatively new, like three or four years old. Not a lot, a lot of people know about it, but Profile to me is when I want to break down my big solution in a single Compose file into smaller chunks and run them and control them independently. I see Profiles, the teams I work with, often used for, they set a specific profile for things that are maybe like the first time database seeding or special things that are maybe not just running container web services, something that I need to run as a one-off. And they will use those as profiles, as a separate profile for, or maybe if you have a team where you have backend and front end and it's all in the same compose file and your backend people don't always need to run the front end. So you can put uh, profiles for that. Include to me is how to break up a large compose file into smaller chunks for reusability across repos. Is that, is that a good yeah. argument? I would say include, yeah, include is more of, if, if you think about what are all the different source materials you're going to bring together to put into your stack, and then profile is, okay, what am I sele- selectively actually turning on and off? It would be kind of the way to think about that. And, and I'd say another use case I see profiles a lot, because I was guilty of this in years past, where I would have a compose file for development, I have a compose file for my tests that are running in, in tests, and yeah. you know, another compose file for maybe production or whatever. And Profiles lets you kind of merge all that into a single and it makes it easier to leverage the same services for different use cases. And then you can use the profiles to then just selectively say, hey, I'm, I'm doing my end-to-end tests, so let me enable the test profile, which then will then spin up those services, but not the other services. Yeah. Yeah, if you go into microservices, I feel like the, the profile is really a powerful feature because you, can, you don't want to light up all 20. So. Yeah. You just want to spin up five and you always need a database, an API or something or whatever. So those are always in every profile or whatever. So that I I feel like you nailed it there. Like the problem, if you have the problem of a compose file in the backend repo and a compose file in the front end repo and a compose file in every, if you're breaking out all your repos, if you're compose filing in every one of those, that to me is where you should use profile. If you're repeating the same information in a bunch of different compose files across different repos or directories, and you're just copy and pasting the same info, that to me feels more like a, a, an include, include. include would yeah. solve that problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These are, the funny thing is all these things can be used together. And so I feel like I need a new compose course because I definitely teach a lot of compose in my courses, but there's so much to it now that you could really, you could become like a compose new, expert. New compose class. <laughs> so, uh, a lot of new stuff in Compose. What the last one is Compose Publish that we have listed. Real quick, what is Compose Publish? All right, Brett, you want that one or me? Okay, one sentence. I get one sentence. Go uh, for it. 
It lets me share my Compose files with other people without needing Git. Correct. There we go. <laughs> awesome. Yep. And I'll say to you there, like, we're just at the start of that. I mean, because right now there's published. There's not a lot of ways to consume those published things yet. And so, yeah, we're still just getting started in that space. But but yeah, it's using it's, OCR artifacts under the hood and, and that kind of stuff. So it's a it, it, for those of you that may have been around a long time, you know, it, it kind of feels like almost a throwback to Docker app, but in you know, a different way. So it, it looks a little bit different, but yeah, stay tuned. Awesome. There. Yeah, right. that's like an alpha feature, right? Like uh, publishes yeah. like alpha. Yep. Yeah. yeah, okay. So, so that's exciting. Big, the big highlight from DockerCon this past year was this little thing called Docker Scout. <laughs> what is it? Like, get, let's get into it. Why was it the centerpiece of DockerCon this year? Yeah. So first off, the well, the really exciting thing uh, from a company perspective is like you know for the most part, Docker has just sold licenses to, doc, to Docker Desktop, and so as, kind of as a just crump company growth perspective it's like oh well, hey this is exciting because hey it's another product it's something else that we're building and we're we're selling and, and all that kind of stuff too so it's kind of a we've hit a maturity point of hey now we've got multiple products that we're supporting and everything which is exciting to be at again but again what scout is really focused on is helping build a secure software supply chain you know when you build container images there's a lot that goes into that okay what bases are you using where are they coming from are they trusted uh, have they been verified etc what are you putting in your image? What open source licenses are you using? What vulnerabilities might be associated with them? What code quality metrics are you, is your code, are they meeting your code quality standards, et cetera? And there's lots of different ones. Have you configured your image to run as a non-root user, for example? So there's just a lot of these kind of like base things that go into your image builds and building a secure software supply chain. And beforehand, there, there weren't, you know, Docker didn't have any tools to help out with this. So Scout is, again, really focused on that. And there's local developer tools that help me as a developer to know, you know, that we're seeing uh, various policies up in copyleft license issues or vulnerabilities, um, outdated base images, et cetera. And so while I can see that across my entire organization in this UI, as a developer, well, I can evaluate all these things locally. And so I don't have to wait for the feedback loop of it having to go through my CI pipelines and then just to find out, oh, wait, yeah. I can't run this in production because I don't have a non-root user, et cetera. I, I can evaluate all this stuff locally. And the theory here is to we'll speed up de developers and decrease that feedback loop, help them stay efficient and kind of in the groove longer. And so, yeah, it's our new product. It went uh, GA, so generally available at DockerCon in October. There's still a lot of work to do here. There's still a lot of new features and things that we have planned. There's a GitHub app that's been released here very, very soon. So we'll actually integrate and can actually even automate PRs to update Docker files, to use new base images or, you know, fix vulnerabilities, that kind of stuff. So that's pretty exciting stuff there. Again, just it, it's about that secure software supply chain. And in combination with uh, one of the themes, and we talked about this during the, the DockerCon live show, one of the themes was this focus on the inner loop, right? The stuff that's happening before the pull request within your software development lifecycle. And this fits squarely within the intersection of a secure software supply chain, security, and that inner loop development cycle. And I'm excited to see more emphasis put on that step in the process. Cause I think, you know, as we've been seeing over the last decade, from an operator point of view, there's been a lot of focus on like Kubernetes, running containers, the environment and context and 
everything that you have to do to productionize and keep your services up and running from an operations perspective. And then there's a massive gap. And then there's like development tools, like somewhere like out there. And this, this gap is starting to be closed finally, I think as an industry. And so this is kind of in between there and a step toward that, correct? Yeah, I very much agree. And that's been the fun thing of building these tools that it's an intersection of so many different personas and so many different roles coming together. You know, as Docker's really focus on developer tooling and everything, it's like, how do we make this kind of, you know, a lot of the tools that are very oriented towards security professionals or, you know, are very niche personas. How, how do we make them accessible to everybody here? And, and so, yeah, it's been fun to, to see the developers' reaction so far as they've played around with it and been like, okay, hey, I, I can actually use this. This this is, seems pretty straightforward. And, you know, a lot of times developers don't care about, especially like the security vulnerability stuff, until they're forced to care about it. And so this makes it a lot easier for them to do that. But again, there's like, uh, it's been kind of interesting to see even for myself as we've enabled some policies to try out internally, like the images configured with a non-root user by default. Okay. Like I'll admit, how often have I cared about that in the past? Like, it's like, okay, it's one of those things. It's a best practice. Yeah, I should do it. But once it's a policy, once it's up there and I'm being measured by it, like I want that to be a hundred percent. And so I'm going to go update all my images. Like it's almost like gamifying that, that occurs with it. And again, as we've been testing out a lot of these new policies internally, as we've been trying these things up, like I've noticed my own just security consciousness has increased. I wouldn't say I'm a security expert by any means, but I'm at least thinking about these things more than what I used to be. Yeah. You have a lot here and I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out like, where does this fit in the marketplace for like the teams that I'm working with, the people that are asking me about security because DevSecOps, I mean, it's getting to the point where Nermal and I, every show we have, someone's asking about DevSecOps, but you know, (laughs) we have companies like Sneak and these companies that focus on developer tool security. That's not container specific. It's usually code repo oriented. And then you have all these security tools that are cluster operator focused, where it's monitoring infrastructure and Kubernetes clusters and what's running. And those are really great. And then there's this nebulous middle area where some tools are just a part of the CI pull request or or the CI runs or something like that. And and that's really their focus. But I feel like this, for a sort of like a 1.0 release, let's call it, it's got CLI tooling locally. It's got GitHub Action and CI tooling for automation. It's got tooling in your registry or to plug into all the other registries. It's got tooling in Docker Desktop and it all comes together. I think that's really what I enjoy about it is that I, every developer works differently. Some use CLI only, some lean on GUI, some don't like remote services, some completely depend on remote services. So there's a lot of places where I feel like even if I were to go and set up a GitHub Actions to do a Trivi scan or some, you know, a, a sneak scan or something like that. Sure, I'm putting a gate there maybe in my CI, but that's pretty late, right? That's in the PR process that is maybe later than what I, you know, the developer is just trying to get code submitted so they can get it in the cluster. And now that's when they're finding out the bad news. So I love the the sort of the cohesiveness of this around it, it exists in my Docker desktop. I don't have to wait until it's processed by my Git repo. I can push my own images to hub and see the stats here without pushing them maybe to the official repos of my project. I can kind of figure out where I like to see this stuff. And I like the different options because it you could have easily just said, we have scout.docker.com and that's it, right? Like that's yep. all you get. But you, yep. I feel like it's, but, and just, we're going to have another show once a lot of these integrations light up because 
each one of these integrations is a, an entire show for us to talk about how Scout can help yeah. you with your Artifactory or Scout can help you with your Circle CI. You know, there's just yeah. so much here. And I one of the things to, I'm going to read between the lines a little bit of what you said there as well too, but, you know, Scout is really drilling in on the idea that, or container, uh, containers and images as the packager. Um, and so, you know, everything is, okay, what's the base image? What's going in your image? How are we deploying your images? And so, as you said, you know, it, this Scout's not a production runtime monitoring service. Like, yeah. we're, we're not going to replace that. And we have no plans to, to replace that. It's how, to, how can we hook in with those different services and, and whatnot. And that's some of the SysDig integrations you see and whatnot. So it's really about the, the secure software supply chain around the container images. And actually, kind of time back earlier, you know, the Mobi releases and using BuildKit and okay, now we can generate these S-bombs automatically. Well, hey, that's what enables a lot of this to, to actually happen. When you create an image, that image is immutable. You're, you're not going to change that. And so you think of that S-bomb as almost like the cargo manifest of what's in the box. And then Scout can ingest that and continue to, to watch and monitor for new issues or um, things, even after your CI gates have, have passed and you said, yeah, all things are good. Well, you know, new vulnerabilities, new issues may be discovered three months from now. Well, yeah, you can just go in the dashboard and it'll cross-list vulnerabilities X against the S-bombs that we've ingested and here are the images that are affected by it. So yeah, there's no more having to go rescan everything to find out what's vulnerable, what's not. It just will tell you. And so yeah. it, it's kind of this, the, the way I like to think of it, it's just this like huge data graph at the end of the day with lots of different things that are annotating your images with packages and what user it's running as and open source licenses and all these different things. And then how do you make sense of that graph? I like the default, changing default behavior subtly is one of, is a hard art form in tooling. And I feel like Scout can do that where like you're, we're getting attestations in some cases automatically as bomb generation is happening automatically. And so as Docker sort of pushes these things to our different tooling, and then people will stumble onto it and go, oh, I don't know what S-bombs are because they're not mm -hmm. maybe at a large company that has to deal with S-bombs or government contractors or whatever. So it, I, I like, that's one of the things that when we go back and I feel like that's some of the ways that we have to get this stuff out. That's almost like our duty, a duty of care kind of thing of if we know there's a better default or a, a, a feature that we should enable that doesn't harm anyone, like a, like an S-bomb scan or like a, adding attestations in build kit, like that should just happen. And then people yep. later go, oh, look at all this stuff I have in my image that I didn't even know about that's here yep. now. Whereas I think a lot of times in the industry, we release a tool and we say, well, everybody should use this tool, but it's you have to implement that tool. And people don't mm -hmm. always do that. And if it's a single use tool, like a like an attestation creator, and, and like very few people will do that, right? It's only when they're yep. mandated to do it. And I love this sort of turning security on by default approach. Yeah. Where, where we're hoping to, to I mean, uh, the conversations have already started, but like open pub key and signing of those images and everything, like those that have been involved with that, like there's a lot of infrastructure, there's a lot of process, there's a lot of setup involved. And again, it's, uh, you know, how do we just make that easy? So as you were saying, it could be as mostly just turnkey or it's automatic and it's just there and you don't have to think about it or worry about it. And, you know, if something breaks, if something's happened, uh, you know, hey, this image you pulled is, has been tampered with, then you can know it right away and you don't have to think much about it. So it's, it's yeah, how do, how do we unlock a lot of these capabilities for the masses? And so yeah, yeah stay tuned there. And if you're working at a large enterprise company and you haven't heard about S-bombs yet, it is likely going to land up in front of you <laughs> right. in the near future. Especially, I mean, in the public sector for sure, but 
anywhere that you're working in any kind of compliance environment, it's likely going to start showing up more and more in your world. Yeah. Ask real quick, is it possible to have Scout Layer to CI and CD? Yes. Yep. Yeah, it's one of the integrations. And yeah, mm -hmm. we should definitely do a whole show and, and dive deep into there because there's a lot to go through. And uh, let's do it. Asking us as well about uh, requesting a new show yes. about all the different stages where we can do Scout stuff, like, you know, local dev, when I push the yep. images, when I do CI, like, yeah, that, there's all these different layers to that for sure. All right. Awesome. And this is a great discussion. We should do this more often. It's I wonder so what's coming up next, everyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so jump, jumping to a completely different topic, like we we did one theme for sure, which is like that inner loop, the, the dev cycle, the pre-PR, so secure software supply chains, if I can say that 10 times fast. That was definitely a big theme of last year across the different conferences, around DevOps for sure. The other big theme <laughs> we'd be amiss to mention, and I don't think we're allowed to do a show anymore, Brett, without mentioning AI or machine learning anymore, is AI ML, right? And so yep. with the explosion of Gen AI, LLMs, machine learning, it's been there for a while and now just kind of coming into mainstream usage this past year. What are some of the areas that Docker is intersecting with machine learning and AI? Yeah, great question. So I think there's a couple of different things. And probably the first thing I'll mention was actually Gen AI stack. So at DockerCon yeah. in October, we announced a partnership with Langchain and Olama and Neo4j for the stack. And I, I want to go ahead and say up front, like this isn't the end all be all stack. It's yeah. mostly a, hey, here's an inspiration to get you started to, to play with it. Because there's a lot to learn in AI and in, in, in this space between yes. LLMs and chains and you know, rags or retrieval augmented generation, like there, there's so much to it. And yeah. so with stack, it was kind of, you know, here's a starting point. If you want to experiment, you want to play with it. And guess what? You get clone Docker compose up and it's all running locally on your machine. And so you can develop, you can test things out locally, try it out. And again, just kind of kick, kick the tires a little bit and get a feel for how's this going to work now. And there's several different applications. There's a, a chat bot. There's a, a PDF reader where you can give it a, a PDF and it'll analyze. You can ask it questions. And what I so said, there's a couple different applications you can try out there. And so in many ways, this is helping show that, you know, Docker, what the way that you've been using Docker to build your web apps and your other applications and whatnot, well, guess what? All that still works in the AI space. It's just what you're putting in the container image is different. But all the packaging, all the tooling, the compose stuff, like everything else, you can still leverage. It's just now a different type of app. And so that's a lot of what this Gen AI stack is here. Um, so it's like a it's like a getting started with respect yeah. to Gen AI locally, which is nice because I, I think a lot of folks get are, are get kind of confused about, hey, is it just using the APIs that are from, you know, the major model vendors or LM vendors out there, or is it, how do I interact with these models? Can I run them locally? And the answer to all that is yes, right? It's like, there's, <laughs> it's, it's all new. It's an all new space. Yep. Everyone's experimenting in this. They're trying out all kinds of permutations. And this is kind of getting started with some of the tooling that folks can use to, to develop Gen AI or just machine learning inner uh, model from model to model interaction, fine tuning models, et cetera. And it's just dipping the toe. Like you said, Michael, it's not the be all and all stack for sure. And that the ML space. And I know Brett and I, we've talked about 
doing more shows around this topic in, in the future. Please let us know if that's a topic that you all want to hear more about. But there's MLOps, right? How do you train models? How do you do ser serving inference of models? Then there's these tools like the Gen AI stack, which is using it models, fine tuning them, running them locally, running use cases against them, et cetera. And one of the core elements to all of these, all the things that are happening in the ML world is that containers are our core component of how people are doing these things, right? So like uh, ChatGPT or the GPT-4 models were you know, they did their training, OpenAI did their training on Kubernetes, on like a massive Kubernetes cluster. Containers are involved there, right? So it doesn't mean that you have to learn like another thing. If you're already used to the Docker world or the container world, that means that machine learning is access is even, it's more accessible to you. So yeah. that's awesome. <laughs> and, and what I like about it too is, again, you know, the whole point of using containers in development is, uh, you know, again, if once you've got it set up, you don't have to think about the environment. You can just jump in and focus on the code. And what is it that I'm building? Uh, rather than how do I install Python? How do I get all these you know, open AI tools or you know, uh, Langchain, all these different things? Like You don't have to think about that. It, it, so the, the ability to go from nothing to iterating and testing and experimenting, it, it's, it's so much easier. So that's kind of what the Gen AI stack was um, intended to, to do. And it's been neat to see all the, the different conversations and blog posts like this one um, as well. Uh, how they've help support that. That's yeah, Jade's awesome. got a Jade's got a great walkthrough. I think this yeah. is really good. This is the yes. one that helped me after DockerCon actually understand what well, all this stuff that was going on. And we should point out real quick cuz this is something that I also got confused with at DockerCon. The Gen AI stack and what we're talking about when we talk about Docker AI, there yep. like tell me if I'm wrong here. To me, the Docker AI is a sort of a program or a suite of different things that are all AI related. Gen AI stack is one of them. And then we actually have an AI, Docker AI early access program, which was demoed at DockerCon. And that's actually inside, I think that's in VS Code, right? Like it starts the. Yeah. A, so yeah. I think someone mentioned, wouldn't it be cool if there was something that could assist with making a Docker? Like when we were talking about Docker in it earlier, would yeah. it be cool if there was something that assists with creating the Docker file or creating a compose mm -hmm. file? And so that's what some of that was demoed at DockerCon. And that is what is being called, I guess, Docker AI is this kind of assistant. You want to go a little bit more into that? Yeah. So final name still TBD there, but, but yeah. yeah, so this Docker AI, yeah, as it was announced at, at DockerCon, as of today is a VS code extension as we're just iterating and, and experimenting. But yeah, is this opportunity to have a chatbot experience with a, a model that's trained specifically around Docker and, and everything around it. And it uses the context of the project that you're in to help answer those questions. So for example, I can ask the bot and just say, hey, I'm new to Docker. I, I ran this Docker Compose Up thing. How do I open the voting service? And it understands, okay, hey, you're asking about a service that's in the Compose file. Let me look at the exposed ports. But what's the host container? What's the container or what's the host port and the container port? Like it understands all those things. And then just says, yeah, hey, open up localhost 5000 and here's your app kind of thing. And so it, it, it'll, and then it will explain it to you uh, along the way. So it can do a lot of that kind of stuff and just general questions, but also, yeah, how can I help bootstrap or I, I want to add a, another service to my compose stack? Help me do that. So yeah, trying to, to be a little bit of a, an assistant. Help you build your apps. So this was demoed. There was a demo of this at, at DockerCon. 
uh, back in October. All right. So we have a, we're close to uh, the end of the show. We've gone through a full hour. So we've covered a lot of the things that were announced and delivered upon, I guess you could say, released in 2023. So 2024, what's coming up? What are some areas of, what are you excited about for 2024 personally? And then what are some areas that, that we should be on the lookout for that we might do a new, another show on in the, Ooh. in 2024. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, great question. First off, I'm, I'm excited because there's so much going on. Um, so the, the first things that I'll mention are just a little bit of updates from some of the things that we announced at, at DockerCon. So um, at DockerCon, we, we talked about this next gen cloud builder, uh, Docker builder. I forget the exact name, but uh, that that's now called Docker build cloud. Um, and this service it will be coming out in the next couple of weeks and will basically allow you to leverage remote builders. And so again, time back to the build kit being the default builder and everything that again, helps sets up these types of things. So then your team can use a, a shared build environment. And you know, if I do a build, it may be the first build, it's gonna populate the cache and everything. But now if any of my teammates do that same build, well, they can leverage the, the cache that I just populated. Um, and we'll have native multi-architecture uh, nodes and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, really cool stuff. Um, and, and it can also be shared with my CI pipeline. So again, you kind of think of this shared cache environment um, and a lot of the the, the benefits that, that come along with that. And especially since I'm on a Mac and with Apple Silicon, you know, if I'm having to build for AMD 64 images, that could be a slow process. And so again, this gives me an opportunity to use native, native machines for all that as well. So stay tuned on that. And, and again, as, as Docker is looking forward, you know, we are thinking about how we can leverage cloud services to to enhance and add more compute resources to the things that you're already doing, but do so in a way that still, I mean, developers love to build locally. And, and so the last thing we want to do is say, hey, you must do everything in the cloud and forget your normal practice. Yeah. You're going to wait do it for all. CI, wait for CI. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so we want to be smart about that. So as we continue to look forward, like this build services, one of those where, hey, I still use Compose locally. I'm still using all my normal local tools, but I'm just enhancing that with a remote build service, but the images still get pulled down on my machine. I'm still running the containers on my machine, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it's again, being very thoughtful. And like we were talking about earlier, how do we make that as seamless and as easy as possible? So you don't even have to think about it. It just works. So again, there's more in the works yeah. I can't talk about yet, but you know, continue to expand on that idea and, and that mindset as well. Yeah. I was going to say real quick, it's one of those things where like the int earlier, it's like, mm-hmm. I felt like we could have had this eight years ago. Not that Docker should like, you know, it's one of those things totally. where once you used it, you're like, yes, I always want this option. I would love yeah. to have an option that if I'm on a low powered machine or if I need to do cross cross comp- compilation of different architectures or, yeah. you know, there's all it's and actually it's more at first when I first saw it, I thought, oh, it's just a remote Docker engine that is basically automated the connection. But it's way more than that. So when we get an official release of it, we're going to have to have another Docker show. Uh, <laughs> There's, there's still a reason why Docker is in the name of this YouTube channel. It's because yep. Docker keeps doing stuff. So we talk a lot about it. All right. So to that point, like around that local development or the development lifecycle, you know, that inner loop, one area that another thing like why haven't we had this a long time ago is the Docker debug. I love, I was excited about that at DockerCon, like the demo of that. So what is Docker de- debug? Just real quick. Yeah. So as of today, it's actually packaged as an extension, but eventually it'll be rolled in. This just helps us iterate a little bit faster. 
But so when you install the extension, and there's a separate one for Kubernetes as well too, but when you do this, it'll basically create another command that will allow me to... So for example, when I do a normal, if I try to ping, you know, ping's not found, okay? And we've all run into that before. Hey, I'm trying to debug something and crap, I, I can't do it. Well, now what it allowed me to do is say, hey, I'm going to attach to this container, but I'm going to bring my own tools into the container. And so I'm not going to install anything. And in fact, my container can stay read-only and, and everything else. But now, hey, I can do my ping and it's working because it's using the tools that I'm bringing along with it rather than the tools that are installed in the container. And I can install other stuff. It's using Nick's behind the scenes. So it's you know, magic. Nick package, that feels package. like magic. Yeah, it is really cool. And so a similar thing for uh, Kubernetes pods. In that case, it'll actually spin up an, an ephemeral container in the pod. But same idea here where now I can debug and I can troubleshoot, bringing in my own tools, which allows you to then say, hey, my final images I'm building and pushing to production or in development, like I don't have to build a lot of those debug tools in because now I have a way to bring them in, which means, hey, smaller images, more streamlined, less security issues, footprint, et cetera. And this will even which work with, you know, multi-stage Go projects in which I do from scratch and just copy in binaries. Now I can actually get into a shell and, you know, look at the file system, debug, yeah. even from scratch images, which is really, really yeah. cool. That's nice, especially when you don't have to have like a different dev image from your production because you need all these particular like ping, curl. You know, I, I have that set of tools. In fact, I have the net, I stole the net shoot from Nicola, a very popular image of all these Kubernetes and Docker troubleshooting tools that are really yeah. just Linux tools mostly. And it's like, that is its own course. Like it's its own section in my course of how to use Docker exec and cube control, you know, all these different commands and different options that I have to yeah. do. And then I have to know the package managers in there to make sure I get the tools. It's a lot. Like, I mean, it actually, yeah. for someone who's maybe even not super familiar with all the different package managers and stuff, it can be a lot. And I think this is one of those things where Again, it feels like it, it's one of those things that should have always been there all along in our container pipelines. And now we have yep. it. It's yeah. right there. It's free in your yep. Docker desktop. It's yep. enough for you to, to download and try it out. It's just, Right now, it's an extension to get them. Again, eventually, it'll be actually folded into the product itself. But So there's a, the debug tools to get local con containers and the ephemeral containers because it's a different use case and, and they're wanting to iterate and kind of deploy it more frequently and that kind of stuff um, is a separate um, Kubernetes toolkit one as well. So yeah, give it a nice. shot, give us feedback. Yeah, so debug you can get now as an extension, may change yes. later. The Docker build cloud that we talked about is wait until January, come back to the show. We'll point it out when it's announced, but mm -hmm. we're all on our, you know, we're basically on the edge of our seats waiting for that launch essentially, or the announcement yep. of that. And then we quickly, we had the mutagen uh, acquisition. We had the atomic jars acquisition. These are both tools and experts in their fields that are going to be showing up as different parts of the Docker tooling. I, I don't know if you have any any sort of 2024 insider, I mean, that you can talk about that we can sneak out there on this show that maybe no one will notice because know, no one watches this show. So maybe they won't realize that we, we did something. What, what, what is this preview feature? Synchronized file shares. What, what is this? So... Um, oh. So, so the uh, the mutagen for those that aren't familiar, it was it brought in a lot of different things. But Jacob Howard, he is actually a Docker captain as well um, before the acquisition, but um, had built a tool to help kind of synchronize files from the host file system into the the containerized the the virtual machine. So that way, it's not having to go through the bind mounts. And and so with the mutagen acquisition, well, hey, now let's actually fold that into Docker Desktop itself. And so this will be coming out here very soon. 
where then you can set up the synchronized file shares. And then, so it's trading basically additional storage for performance. And so, yeah, the files are going to be on your host machine, but then also copied in the container. And then this will do all the synchronization between the different hosts, you know, all the machines and all that kind of stuff and, and just make it work. So, so that's coming soon too. And then of course, I'm, I'm excited with the, the atomic jar acquisition as well, because in many ways, you know, Docker's been build, share, run, and the scout, we kind of talk about verify, but now it's like, Hey, let's add another verb to that of test. You know, how do we make testing easier? And, and I've been a big test containers fan for a long time and whatnot. So it's fun to have them part of the group now. Yeah. Yeah. Test containers actually was on this show, I think this year, one of the other co-founders and I, it started with Java, my understanding, but now yes. has a lot more fr framework and language supports built into it. And I, I need a refresher because I watched the video, you know how you like you have someone on the show, they, t they teach you all this stuff. And then six months later, you've completely forgotten it all. That's what happened with, with me and test yep. containers. So we're going to have to do another show on that in the new year. I think that's our common phrase. That's another show. So yeah. <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about. That's the title of this show is this is the show about other shows. <laughs> the meta show. Well, one last thing I wanted to do before we kind of close out is just thank you, the audience, all our viewers, our listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for looking at the newsletter. Thanks for opening up the blog posts. Sorry for having to listen to my voice in your car or uh, on your podcast. Um, but thanks. Uh, we we wouldn't do this without y'all. And um, I'm super excited about getting into these awesome topics next year with with Brett. If if Brett will have me back uh, next year, for for what it's worth, you know your voice is better than this voice. So you know. That oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to hear that on the podcast. So we're, yeah. So now you have to sing the Christmas chipmunk song because you have that. And there we go. Christmas time. Christmas. All right. The last thing we should say is the community is growing. So the Docker community is growing. Of course, mm -hmm. I see that through my courses and how people still keep buying courses. But there's also a we had our first DockerCon this year back in the real world live. Stay tuned for Docker to announce something about next year. Uh, I don't really have a lot of inside information, but I have had conversations. So there will be something in the future. We have 20 new captains, which means you have more captains making YouTube videos than ever before and blogging than ever before. I think we're up to 63 now, it says here, which that's like peak captains. I feel like that's very close to even pre-COVID peak captains when we were all at all the conferences spreading the yep. word of Docker. Yeah, so very cool. And like I said, like basically in a repeat normal, Thank you so much, y'all, for being here. Michael, thank you so much. Of course, you will be back next year, as always. And Nermal will be, he is, uh, he is a stamp of approval for another year of co-hosting. Yay! <laughs> ah, congratulations! <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to wrap this up for another a great show with great guests. Come and join us live or listen to us on your podcast player. See you soon, everyone. All right. Ciao. Thanks, all. Happy New, Happy New Year. Year. Thanks. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.